0: Is it possible that a miracle cure is hiding inside of a deer's stomach? And then we travel to the Bitterroot Mountains of Montana, where two hikers are out exploring nature. But only one hiker would come back home today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having lots of fun. And I hope you guys have some cool plans for the weekend. We got a ton of stuff to cover. So first off, let's go ahead and invite in one of our live stream show supporters this is someone who donated money during the thanksgiving live stream of 2020 it's ira Onock. everyone give a round of applause to ira ira's dancing into dead rabbit command ira you're going to be our captain our pilot this episode if you guys can't support the patreon or the live streams or anything like that that's fine too just help spread the word about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. And as I have Ira polishing up the Jason Jalopy, they're like, dang it, I didn't know this was part of the job. It is today. As Ira's polishing up the Jason Jalopy for our first journey, I want to give a little update. Last week, I mentioned that I may soon be in the possession of a piece of the Balloon Boy balloon. I always have to keep adding that last part. I always think this is a long pause. And it makes it sound like I'm actually going to have a piece of Falcon Heaney. I got in touch with Squeeze God, a longtime listener of the show. They now have my PO box, which is also in the show notes. If you do want to send me stuff, but soon, in a couple weeks, no rush. Um, but soon, I will have a piece of the Balloon Boy. Um, I see. I always, <laughs> there's always this long pause there. I'm afraid now someone's going to send me a finger, and it'll be like I have the rest of Falcon in my garage. But thank you, squeeze God. Thank you for everyone who can support the show financially or with gifts. And if you can't do that, just spread the word about the show. It really, really helps out a lot. And Fan Art Friday, we have this piece of art from Church Going Mule. It is a reference to my episode, The Not Deer, where I said deer were as harmless as gerbils. And this is this amazing watercolor painting of a deer. The gerbil of the woods. So thank you so much, church-going mule. Really, really appreciate that. Ira, we got the car detailed perfect. It looks better than it ever has. Ira, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys. (laughs) That's too nice to drive. I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the Dead Rabbit Dirigible. We are now leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are headed on out to Louisiana. Ira's perfectly piloting this Dead Rabbit Dirigible. Specifically, we're going to South Vicherry, Louisiana. It's the early 1800s. That's like Bayou music playing. Little dude with the, like a banjo. And we're coming down in the Dead Rabbit Dirge and we see like this swamp. Imagine Louisiana and mostly swamp. And there's like this family there. They're the Gravois family. Very early settlers to the South Fitzgerald area of Louisiana. And there's a woman in the family and she's walking along. She's carrying, I don't know, like berries and twigs and stuff like that. And then you're like, Jason, this is like the late 1800s and not cave people. Anyways, she's, I don't know, maybe she's like carrying like a book and a, a ball of yarn. It doesn't matter what she's carrying. That's not the point of the story. What's the point of the story is what's following her. There's this little snake on the ground. Then it goes, and it bites her. And she's like, oh no. And she drops, she drops whatever she was holding, I'm assuming. And she's like, oh, now I got bit by this snake. Nowadays, that's a pretty rough afternoon. Like, for if you live in, like, most parts of the world. If you live in the middle of nowhere, you're probably doomed. But if, like, I got bit by a snake right now, I'd wonder how it got into my house. But then I would just go to the doctor. And I'd be like, hey, I got bit by a snake. And I'd show him. And then I'd, like, take pictures of it and post it on TikTok and stuff like that. And I'd probably just get some antibiotics or some anti-venom. You're like, Jason, you... <laughs> You're really underestimating what a snake bite does. Okay, maybe I'd, like, seize up a bit. But I'd still, like, you know, be able to dial 911 with my nose and stuff like that. You live nowadays is what I'm saying. In most parts of the world, you got bit by a snake. As everyone's still shaking their heads. and They're like, Jason, please, do not test your theory. Don't go anywhere near a snake if you think you're just going to have a quote-unquote bad day. Anyways, back then, it's definitely a death sentence. You get bit by a snake. Like, diarrhea was a death sentence back then. You were toast if you just, like, couldn't hold in your poop. So she's like, oh, man, she's, like, writing her will. She's like, (laughs) she's like, to my kids, I give my book and my ball of yarn. Signed, Lucy. But before she can die, this indigenous dude shows up. and He's, like, in the bushes, and he's like, "Uh uh-oh, you just got bit by a snake. But... Don't worry, that's not the death sentence you may think it is. And he pulled out this stone, and he put it on her wound, and it stuck to it. And he's like, just wait. Don't, don't, don't touch it. Just wait. Wait a bit. And then the stone eventually falls off, and he put it in his pouch. He walked away. And she's like, I hope that was a cure. I wouldn't mean, like, steal my soul through the snake wound. And it was a cure. She actually lived. And then about a year later, this same indigenous dude is walking through the bushes and he's like, oh, I'm super sick. I have really bad case of diarrhea. It's a death sentence. And they said, well, maybe we can like help you not have diarrhea anymore. (laughs) We have this cork. We're gonna stick in your butthole. You'll be just fine. So they didn't actually say he had diarrhea. I don't know what he had, but the point is they nursed him back to health. And he said, thank you for bringing me back to life. They're like, well, you saved the life of one of our family. He goes, well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. In return for saving my life, I'm going to give you this stone. This little stone, if you put it on a wound, it will heal it. But only your family can use it. If anyone else, you, you loan it to someone, the stone will not work. And that is the origin story of the Mad Stone of cherry. Now, I found out about this from an internet user named Bayou Blue. So thank you, Bayou, for bringing this to my attention. i never heard of the story before. And what's interesting is that's a legend. We have that story. And I'm sure parts of it are true. Actually, I'm sure a lot of it's true, honestly. In 1999, there was an article in a newspaper written by Leonard Gray. The, The newspaper is called the Observator. It was like a Louisiana newspaper. And he documented this. And he said, yeah, the mad stone was talked about a lot in the area. There was actually old newspaper articles back in the 1800s about the stone. And the stone is still in the possession of the family, although now it's just like a couple little pieces. But is it real? Like, we know the stone's real, we know the family's real, We the story probably happened in some sort of fashion, but all of that stuff is just, yeah. The question is, can it actually cure people? Well, this is the weird thing. It works. Apparently. Don't go out getting by snakes. I know you were starting to run off into the thick weeds on a summer day, but let me finish this story. So the mad stone is a real thing, and the mad stone of a cherry is a real thing, but you don't have to be a member of the Gravois family to have one and have one that actually works. There are a lot of these out there, and there's a website called appalachianhistory.net, and they really go into detail about what the mechanics are of a mad stone. It's the calculus from a deer. So when deer this happens, I guess, in animals that eat a lot of grass, they they can get this mineral created in their stomach. So they're inside the stomachs of deers from when they're eating the grass. And they say this net goes into this whole legend: if you can get one from an albino deer, those are actually the most powerful. Those work the best. But any any deer that has one of these, it will do in a pinch. You want like the most powerful one, and that's probably where the madstone of a cherry came from. But if you happen to shoot a deer, and you cut his stomach open, and you find one of these rocks, save it. And the recipe goes like this. This is interesting because it's left out of the legend, but this is how you would use one of these today. And the weirdest thing is, apparently, these actually work. You take this mad stone, and you boil it in sweet milk and then while it's still hot you apply it to the wound so a snake bite any sort of toxin actually this will work but they keep talking about snake bites and it apparently works if you have rabies you take like you're like this is where the dog bit It's all this festering wound you're missing half your calf and they're like we're gonna need a bigger stone guys But you take the stone, you boil it in the sweet milk while it's still hot, you put it on the wound, and it'll actually stick to the wound. And then eventually it'll fall off. Then you take the mad stone, you put it back in the boiling sweet milk, and the sweet milk will turn green. You take the stone out of the green milk, attach it back to the wound, and you let it sit there until it falls off. And you continue this over and over and over again until it can no longer stick to you. So eventually you'll just put it on and it won't stick at all. And you're like Jason, how could this possibly be real? How could this have to just be some local legend? You can also do this with any porous stone. You can get a a like a rock from the river. It basically any rock that's worn smooth and is porous, you can do this same trick. And be, basically when it gets hot, it's sucking out the toxin into the rock, and then you boil it again. And it gets the toxin out, and then you put it back on, and it sucks back out. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, Jason. This is not real. This is. I don't know why you keep saying that this is real. Well, let me tell you this. A doc... Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing, okay? I, I researched this story. I did. But apparently... I keep using the word apparently. Apparently it's real. Because a, do- a doctor... Not a medical doctor, but a man with a doctor in front of his name said in 1917 that it works, so it might. That's why I keep saying apparently. It would be interesting to see if you could replicate it today, but the problem (laughs) is is that you'd have to go. You're in a laboratory, and they're like, okay, these people have a placebo. They're going to get bit by a snake that has no venom, and you're going to be bit by a snake that has venom. You're like, wait, I I thought I wasn't supposed to know, and they were going to put these stones on you, but... Yeah, so you would have to test it, but apparently, that is the magic word of this episode, apparently it does work. They, I don't know if it would work for rabies. There was a story in the newspaper about this guy who had already gotten lockjaw, and they put the madstones on him, and the, and the rabies went away. Generally speaking, once you start to exhibit signs of rabies, you're dead. Because you can have rabies in a confessor for a long time. But, according to a newspaper printed in the year 1898, it's possible. So I would like to test. This madstone theory. I wonder if they still use them today. I'm sure they do. Nowadays, though, you would just go to the doctor. Nowadays, you get bit by a rattler. You're like, Pfft. better call up my girlfriend and cancel lunch. But dinner's still on because Jason just said this is going to be a bad afternoon. Everything will be fine. But it, may, it might be. Maybe on the way to the doctor's office, you're sitting in your car. You just take a little stone out of your pocket. You're like, good thing I boiled Good thing I was already boiling the sweet milk. I don't know why I was gonna drink it, but psh, and then you drop your mat stone into the boiling sweet milk and you just hum a jaunty tune as you head to the emergency room. And the toxin is slowly shutting down your respiratory system. Interesting, interesting story. Ira, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the carbon copter. We are leaving behind Louisiana. We are headed on out to Bitterroot Mountains in Montana. <laughs> I want to do a real quick Dead Rabbit Recommends, but it's not something I would ever recommend. It might be the most bizarre movie I've ever seen. And I've seen the movies Begotten, The Holy Mountain, and When Blackbirds Fly. So I have a pretty high level of bizarre movies. And this one might take the cake, but in a way you would never expect. I've had this in my notes for like six months. I just have to talk about it. It's a lost media, kind of. It's a movie called, let me make sure I get the title right, because I don't ever really want to think about this movie again. I figure once I tell you guys about it, the curse will be lifted. There's this, I watch this, I watch the whole thing. It's available on Amazon. It's called Pity, I Don't Have Perfect Pitch 2. And it's a parody of the Pitch Perfect movies, which I absolutely can't stand can't stand those movies sorry if i just lost nine loyal listeners i'm I'm sorry the nymphettes or whatever the name were well what were they called like the silhouettes or something like that i don't know i don't think i don't think they were called the nymphettes but pity i don't have perfect pitch too is a parody it's like a airplane type movie it's a parody of those movies and it's about the singing cats versus the harma dogs And it's one of the most puzzling movies I've ever seen in my life. And here's why. It's not that the jokes didn't work, and they didn't. It's not that the plot was awful, and it was. It's a musical. You you have to see it to believe it. I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to waste two more minutes, and then I'm never going to speak of it again. It is a musical with no music. And it catches you completely off guard. Because I put it in. Because I like watching bad movies. And I hate Pitch Perfect, so what could be worse than a Pitch Perfect parody? And they get to the first song, and there's no sound. Well, I should be more specific. There's no singing. You hear a doo doo-doo-doo-doo, do 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 and you, they're moving their lips, and they're doing this whole dance routine, and text appears on the screen, and it goes, there is no music. There's no music in this movie. And you're just watching them dance, and then the movie starts back up, and the audio's back, and you're like, "What?" And then they get to the next musical number. It's there's several of these musical numbers. It's a musical. It has to be like this has to happen like 15 times. It gets to the next song, and they go, "Hit it, girls!" And the sound drops, and you hear do 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 do, and more text appears on the screen, and it goes, "Here's what happened. We originally filmed all of these really really funny songs for this movie." And then, do-do-do-do, do 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 and just, and then it goes to the next song. It's the most compelling movie ever, because you, they tell you piece by piece. You don't even pay attention to the plot. You can't wait until the next musical number, quote-unquote musical number, for the sound to cut out, you know what they say, we always sit- And it explains the story. What happened was they had recorded all these parody songs for this musical, and when they went to release it, the lawyers for the film company said, "Did you get the rights for these parodies?" And they said, "No." And the lawyers go, "You can't use these songs." And they go, "Well, it's it's musical. Like, don't we have like fair use because it's parody?" And the lawyers are like, "Absolutely not. You have to go get all of this licensing stuff done. It's going to cost like millions of dollars." so then they go well can we rewrite original songs and put them in there and try to make the words match what they're lip syncing and then they said you know what that's just way too much trouble we'll release a musical with no songs <laughs> it's so bizarre it is one of the most bizarre movies i've ever seen it's a treat like i watched the whole thing and i can guarantee you had had it been a normal pitch perfect parody movie and the songs were probably mediocre at best funny i probably would have shut it off 30 minutes in the fact i was sitting on the edge of my seat because they lay it out so they just give you a little bit of information each musical number why there's no music it was fascinating so if you want to add a movie to your collection if you want a -a one-of-a-kind movie going experience watch pity i don't have perfect pitch too. i i have to own a physical copy of this because what's gonna happen it's on amazon right now it won't be on amazon forever because the the trailer is geared towards young girls who love the pitch perfect series who love the music and the singing, and they're gonna be like they're gonna get their slumber party all together they're like oh this will be so funny and then they're just what I need to own a copy of this. My P.O. Box is in the show notes. If someone wants to buy me a copy of Fiddy, I don't have perfect pitch to and send it to me. So weird. One of the weirdest movie going experiences I've ever had. I'm, I'm not joking. That is that is it, it's, it ranks up there with the time that I got super stoned and watched Tommy for the first time. I had no idea what it was about. I'm like, what? This whole movie is about a blind dude? Blind dude getting raped while playing pinball? <laughs> and I'm super stoned? What is going on? Pity, it ranks up there with that type of movie-going experience. Dead Rabbit reluctantly recommends <laughs> just because it's so bizarre. Pity, I don't have Perfect Pitch 2. Now available on Amazon. But it'll be gone soon. Ira Onok is flying the Carpenter copter. We're listening to the soundtrack of that movie. It's just like, do, doo-doo-doo-doo, do, 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 I will bring this carbonicopter nice and low here. We're flying over the Bitterroot Mountains in Corvallis, Montana. It's July 18th, 2007. It's 12 p.m. I just found out about this story, I don't know, maybe a day ago. And I was like, this is a story I'm going to end the week on. Barbara Bullock, this 55-year-old woman, is happily married to her husband, Carl Bullock they're hanging out in the Corvallis, Montana area, just enjoying life. Carl's cousin and her friend Jim Rammaker have come to visit, spend some time together, enjoy the outdoors, just relaxing. July 18th was a day of a scheduled hike, and that was supposed to be Barbara leading the way she'd done this hike dozens of times up through the Bitterroot Mountains, and she was going to take Jim and Carl's cousin, but Carl's cousin, she had a hangover. It was kind of a rough night, kicking back some drinks. So Barbara goes, you know what, Jim, let's just do the hike ourselves. And Jim was totally fine with it. They loaded up their packs and Barbara was so experienced in this area. She knew that she had to watch out for bears. So she packed her 357 Magnum, which she always brought with her. And they headed off down the trail. As they're headed off to the entrance of the trailhead, there's a construction crew there, and they're doing their jobs, banging stuff into the ground and like hoisting up girders, nailing each other's pants to the ground. It's hilarious, but they walk past the construction crew, not really thinking anything of it. And they are making their way down this trail. Where they're headed is the Bear Creek Overlook area, which is going to provide a scenic view. And they're going to hit that at the end, and then they're going to come back home. And as they're making their way across the trail, they run into two other hikers. Two dudes, and they have this black dog with a little white, little bit of white fur on him, and they just kind of pass each other. Barbara talks to him briefly, and Jim kind of looks back, sees Barbara talking to him. They continue down the trail. Barbara and Jim continue walking down the trail, talking and enjoying the solitude of nature. And Jim gets to Bear Creek Overlook. And he looks out and he sees this gorgeous view of the valley. And he looks back, and he sees Barbara coming up behind him. She's maybe 20, 30 feet away. And then he looks back out to the field. One minute later, he looks back, and the trail is empty. One minute passes, and he looks back down the trail. Barbara. Is gone. Now Jim's all alone here. This is unfamiliar territory for him. But it's a trail. It's listed. When you look at the hiking trail guide for the area. It's listed as a moderately. Hard trail to walk. So normal a normal human. Could do this trail. He's kind of looking around. He doesn't see Barbara. He knows this is the end of the path. And he thinks maybe she must have gone back. I mean she was 30 feet behind me. 60 seconds ago. Maybe she must have just turned around. But he takes a second and he looks. And there's no sign of her in his immediate vicinity. He begins walking back down the trail and he notices something. The path is made of loose shale. So every footstep makes a lot of noise as the rocks clickety-clack against each other. And he realizes something. In that minute-long period, he just stopped hearing the noise of Barbara walking. She must have turned around and started going the opposite direction. She must be right around this bend. He continues down the trail. And he keeps expecting to see her every time he makes a turn. He has a whistle, like a safety whistle. He begins blowing it. Shouting her name, no response. He walks all the way down the trail without a sign of her. But he's thinking, she must be just a little bit ahead of me. She must be a little bit ahead of me. She might be at the car. She must be at the car. He gets all the way down the trail. He gets to where the construction workers are. And he goes, hey, this is going to sound super weird, but did you see a woman come out of the forest? The construction workers kind of talk amongst each other because they can tell this guy's agitated at this point. He's walked this whole trail and he has not found Barbara. And they say, the only people we've seen come out of that trail in a while were two dudes and their dog. They walked over and they got in this white van. It's kind of like this white truck vehicle. He drove away. And he's like, you did not see a woman walk out. And they're like, no, absolutely not. Now, at this point... Panic is completely set in, and I'm sure that it's we've all had that experience where we've been lost or we've lost somebody. You're like walking around the store and like one of your siblings that you're supposed to be taking care of wanders off while you're playing Street Fighter 2 of the arcade, and then you start to get that panicky feeling. But you keep thinking they're right around the corner, they're right around the Dig Dug machine. They're hiding behind Dragon's Lair, they're somewhere. He got sucked into the Tron world, but and you find them. But now he's gotten to this point where. She's nowhere. They're at the parking lot. She's not in the car. So he uses one of the construction workers' cell phones to call authorities. And the authorities come out and they ask him, what happened? He goes, you guys are not going to believe this. I can guarantee you. You will not believe this. She was 30 feet behind me. She disappeared. they go, how long were you looking ahead? How long were you really not aware what was going on? And the estimates range anywhere from 45 seconds To two minutes at most. Most accounts say about a minute, but I've seen some people say it was shorter and some people say it was a minute longer. But still not enough for somebody to simply slink out of existence. The authorities call up her husband. They call up Carl. And the authorities seem to just be like, because it's the park rangers involved. They're the ones actually investigating this at this time. The park rangers are like, listen, we're going to find her. Don't worry, but maybe you might want to come down here. So, you know, she might be shaken up and stuff like that. And he goes down there and he tells them she knows this trail. She's she might have I don't know what happened, but she's been on this trail dozens of times. She's so such an experienced hiker. If she did happen to get lost somehow, she has supplies. She has a gun to protect herself. Cause they start asking, Do you think a bear could have gotten her? And Jim's like, Well, I don't I, I don't know how quiet bears are around here, but it didn't make any noise if, if it did. I didn't hear anything. And the other theory they had was that maybe she fell off. Maybe she was too close to the edge of a cliff because they're walking around the Bitterroot Mountains. They're headed to this overlook that overlooks the valley. And, and Carl says, I'm going to tell you something. My wife hates heights. She has never, ever gone near the edge of a cliff. Like, I used to go hiking with her. I had a heart attack. That's why I don't go hiking with her anymore. But... But she wouldn't get close enough to fall off of a cliff. To this day, she has never been found. Not a scrap of clothing. Not a drop of blood. Nothing. When the park rangers investigated the area, they said there was no sign of disturbance or struggle at all. And the obvious answer is Jim did something to take her life. But the authorities, because eventually the police do get involved in things like that. And he's like, listen, I 100% know that I I look like the biggest suspect in the world. It was just me and her in the middle of nowhere. And she disappeared. I will do a polygraph right now. I will cooperate, whatever. I did not do it. And the kind of the consensus is that would be the worst alibi ever to murder someone and then your alibi is well i guess she just vanished i guess she just disappeared behind me i think another interesting part of the mystery is the two men because some people are thinking did the two men snatch her did the two men have anything to do with her disappearance the police want to talk to these guys they said we don't think they're suspects we just want to talk to them because really they'd be the only two other people who could say what Jim and Barbara like what Jim and Barbara's mood was because even though they've ruled out Jim as a suspect it doesn't mean that he's not and if they can get a hold of these two guys and they're like yeah Jim was acting really weird around Barbara and she when she stopped to talk to us she goes hey you know what are you guys up to and she's like hey this guy's acting kind of weird We don't know if any of that was said because we can't find the other two people. There was a $10,000 reward, not for their arrest. Most of the time, when you see an award, it's for their arrest and conviction, which takes years and years and years. And if they get arrested and they don't get convicted, you don't get an award. Whenever they're like $50,000 for the arrest and conviction of so and so, they were willing to pay $10,000 just to know these people's names. They said they are not suspects. We just want to talk to them. These two people, their dog and their car, have never been identified, ever. And the construction workers and Jim gave detailed descriptions. They have detailed description of both people, a drawing of one of them. They have a photo of a dog that looks like the dog, and it says their dog had a little bit of white fur on it and a photo of the type of car they had. The ten thousand dollars has never been claimed. These two people have also disappeared off the face of the earth. Because if someone was offering ten thousand dollars for my identity, I would be like, "It's me, it's me, Jason Carpenter. Give me my money." They these people just disappeared off the face of the earth. You go, Jason. Maybe they were murdered. Maybe they were murderers. They're not going to go and talk to the police. Maybe, but again, no sign of a struggle. Where did Barbara Bolick? Go. It's been 14 years since she disappeared. Where did she go? Now, I know a lot of people are probably listening to this and thinking, Missing 411, that's a conspiracy theory that there is some sort of unknown force in the national parks of America that's kidnapping people and either depositing their bodies in remote Parts of the forest or the body's never being seen again. I think the phenomenon behind missing 411, I don't know if it's a national thing. I do we do know people go missing in forest. I have my own questions about missing 411 as a cohesive conspiracy theory. As people, because some people would just go missing 411. When someone goes missing in the wood, they'll go missing 411. But what they don't understand is missing 411 never answers the what. There's been theories. Some of it is the government's training. There are people in camouflage suits. I've heard that theory bandied around, and that doesn't explain why they're depositing toddlers on the tops of cliffs where some, like, kids been found. Sometimes it's Bigfoot. David Paulades' his original theory was that it was Bigfoot, Now, as Missing 411 got more popular, he kind of pushed that to the side. Now it's just some sort of force, but I don't know if I buy it as a whole, like, every missing person in the woods is missing 411. That's just such a, that's like saying every every possible alien story, it's graze, it's graze, it's graze, all the way down it's greys. And I think you lose a bit of the nuance to it, but a missing 411 type phenomenon falling into another dimension, walking through some sort of unseen portal, that wouldn't cause a disturbance, it would be silent. Some sort of unknown cryptid in the area. There were calls to the police, when the police were asking for help from the community, people were talking about a phantom mountain man. They believe that a phantom mountain man in the area got her. I couldn't find any other reference to this. That was kind of an, an aside in a true crime article. They weren't really talking about any sort of paranormal angle, and I don't know if that meant a literal phantom, like a ghost mountain man, or just a mountain man in that's a human that's been hunting the Bitterroot Mountains all this time and can move silently. Couldn't find, that. that's an interesting theory, but I couldn't find anything else on that. There were some locals saying that was true. But I wanted to end this story with this. A lot of times when we end these episodes, a lot of times when we just think about these stories in general, outside of the podcast, we think, man, what happened to that woman? Like, is she dead? Is her bones somewhere in the woods just completely undiscovered? Was she taken to some mountain man's hobo shack and was kept alive for as long as he pleased and then eventually gutted? Did she pass into another dimension? Has she spent the last 14 years in some sort of world, some other place in time that would be unrecognizable to us? And we can imagine that, and we can fear that, and we can pull out all sorts of scenarios, right, about what could have happened, paranormal or otherwise. But you know what really stuck out to me about this story is imagine not if you were Barbara, Imagine if you were Jim. Would you ever feel safe again? Would you ever be able to find any sort of comfort in your life knowing that someone disappeared off the face of the earth within one minute? She'd been accidentally shot by a hunter or tumbled off a cliff or... Fell into a sinkhole. That would also be terrible. But you could rationalize that in some sort of way. You may wonder, why not me? You may have survivor guilt. But that's all... Realistic. That's all just bad luck. But to know that you were 30 feet away... From another human who ceased to exist... And... 14 years later, it is unknown where that person is or what happened to them. How could you possibly sleep at night? Every time someone you loved was out of your field of vision, you would have to think they're not coming back. Now, see, we don't have that. We don't have that mindset. I think the worst we can have is if we live in bad areas, we could think, my dad's going to work today. I hope he makes it back home. And that's bad enough. That's a terrible enough feeling to go through. But imagine if your dad's like, hey, I'm going to go into the kitchen and get some milk. And you're like, Lord, please protect him. Please protect him. Because once he leaves your field of vision, he may cease to exist. He may never be seen again. Barbara Bolick disappeared, but Jim's story is never-ending. I don't see how he can get a moment of comfort for the rest of his life, knowing at any moment reality can snap and someone 30 feet behind him could disappear. And Jim also has to realize that at any moment, he may be the one who vanishes. If it happened once, it can happen again. And whether he's deep on a trail in the Bitterroot Mountains, or just laying in bed another sleepless night, trying to forget what happened, at any moment he could also vanish. He'll become a mystery, but at least then he'll know what happened to Barbara. DeadRabberRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebookcom DeadRabberRadio. TikTok is at DeadRabberRadio. Dead Radio is the daily paranormal, conspiracy, and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys.